0: Okay, thank you very much for coming to this session of the LSE Literary Festival. Um, My name is Martin Conway. I'm uh, the chair of this session. I'm a professor of contemporary European history in Oxford, and uh, I've written a number of things about mid-20th century Europe, which, of course, is exactly the world uh, that Georges Simenon and his fictional creation, creation, Mekwe, inhabited. Uh, we have three excellent speakers here today to discuss the work of Simonon. First of all, we have John Simonon, his son, and in many ways the uh, the curator of his literary estate. We have John Gray, professor and well-known public intellectual, who's very fascinated by the work of Georges Simonon, and we have Rod Schwartz. Who's been responsible in many respects for the rebirth, especially of the Makeway novels in recent years, through retranslating them and retranslating them properly and seriously? <laughs> so, uh, in many ways, I think this event is, is a tribute to the work of Ross, but I think also, in many respects, it's a tribute to the way in which the whole figure of Simonon has become much more interesting to people in recent years. He's not anybody who needs any introduction. Indeed, his name, in many respects, is one of the few names that you could rely on most people to be able to locate in in terms of 20th century literature. And perhaps because he invented a figure, Maigret, who has become, in many respects, a very dominant literary representation of a certain Paris and a certain mid-20th century French world, we have this rather looming presence, if I may put it that way, of his literary creation, and the looming presence, of course, casts a shadow. And I think one of the purposes of this discussion today is to try to get behind or beyond the shadow of Mercre to discover the things that are really very interesting about Simenon. And just in opening, I'd suggest you know, three things that are really, probably make it worthwhile thinking harder about Simonon. First of all, he comes from a very surprising world, he comes from Liège, he's one of those famous Belgians who you can never remember when being asked (laughs) to list them. He's one of those people who comes out of a particular sort of journalistic world of the interwar years, who makes the migration to Paris, and who goes on to have a, achieves a trajectory into a certain form of literary success in Paris after the war, which of course puts him into a mid-20th century Parisian world, which is also familiar to us from a whole series of other people, be it Camus, Sartre, de Beauvoir and the like. But his world is a very different one from theirs. The second reason for thinking harder about Simonon is the genre. We're all very familiar with the phenomenon of the crime genre. We're familiar with the way in which it has its own rules, which put it in many respects at a certain distance from a, from mainstream literature and one of the real purposes of rediscovering simenon is to discover that he wrote a lot a great deal more than simply crime literature and also what he wrote within the genre of crime literature in many respects transcends that crime literature and goes be, goes beyond the genre and the third and final reason for thinking perhaps a little harder about simenon is the nature of his preoccupations. Certainly when I've been rereading reading uh, some seminar in recent weeks thinking about this today, I've been very struck by the familiarity of a certain world, of bars, of streets in Paris, of rooms, of smells, of railway stations and so on. But when you look behind that setting into the very often really rather vague chronologies as to when this is all happening and how it's all happening, you find yourself in a really rather different world a world very much of masculinities of the era, a world when everybody is, on, is behaving in ways that seem slightly irresponsible. They're all on the margins, they're all in a demi-monde, they can't be relied upon to behave in certain ways. And the figure for whom that reminds me of, and we may come back to this, is Patrick Modiano, who in many respects seems to me to be a French literary figure of a subsequent generation who carries on many of the preoccupations that you see in Simonon, And so the whole purpose of today is in many respects to try to make Simonon seem more unfamiliar, more perhaps historical, more rooted in a particular era. And, it, and I would suggest as a consequence, simply more interesting. Anyway, enough of me. John, you've lived with Simonon all your life. You've been trying to make people appreciate the real figure. What do, you think he, what do you think it is that we need to understand about him?
1: <laughs> well, OK. <laughs> I'm going to try to be short. It's not easy to answer such a question. Um, I think, well, from my point of view, the first thing to answer is that uh, I first knew a man and not a writer, And that man was a father, and not just any ordinary man. So I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the father, but uh, it is very important to understand that that was his most important um, uh, goal in life, is to be a good father. So... We're going to talk about his work, we're going to talk about his characters, but that to him was obviously important. It was very, you know, he was driven to become successful. He wanted to be a success in what he did, uh, but not the ex- at the expense of uh, of his family. Uh, although, you know, some of you may know that <clears throat> there were some tragedies in the family, but that was, you know, uh, things that he tried to fight extremely hard to prevent. Um, so that is the first thing. Now, when it comes to his, uh, to his uh, literary work, my first readings uh, were not Megre. And in fact, I think I probably read about 20 or 30 non Megre novels before, <clears throat> before getting into Megre. And my real attraction to my father's work come from the non Megre novels. Uh, just to put things a little bit in perspective, my father wrote about 300 books. Uh, novels under his own name, and out of these, only 75 uh, are megre novels. I'm talking about novels and short stories because otherwise, Roz is going to question the number. So I put these all together uh, as one number just to make it simple. Um, so, so it's uh, you know megre represent only about a, a third of his uh, of his output. And it's a bit paradoxical that I'm coming here to talk to you about the non-Megre and what, what really I feel very strongly about in that, um, you know, as you just explained, uh, we have now started about uh, a year ago to publish with Penguin uh, brand new pub- uh, brand new translations, essentially, of the Megre novels. And that I myself was involved in producing uh, the, uh, the new Megre series with, uh, with Rowan Atkinson. So it's forcing me today to go back to my first love, which is, which is the non-Margaret. The most important thing, I think, uh, to remember about my father is that he was absolutely convinced, uh, you know, in a very deep way of man's overall irresponsibility. Uh, he considered that there was no way that man could be, uh, although, let me put it this way, I, I have to underline the word biological uh, responsibility. Biologically, you know, you could not hold man accountable for uh, his his actions uh, because there were just, a, you know, a succession of <clears throat> uh, reactions for coming from a chaotic world. Uh, having said this, there's not one single book of my father where a, uh, a murderer or a uh, criminal is not held accountable socially for what he does. And that was... You know, something that you can see is, was always, you know, he was torn between these two notions. Um, And uh, it is very interesting that uh, one of these, uh, one of the few places where he talks about that particular aspect of his work is in a book that was just published a few weeks ago by Penguin, which is a non-megre and a non-fiction, which is called When I Was Old. And John actually wrote a very, very, very good uh, article on, on this uh, book in The Guardian, I think it was... A, no, a new statement, a new statement, yeah. Um, and I, I want to take this opportunity to say that a lot of my, let's say, intuitive feelings about that particular aspect of my father's work were enlightened, and, and um, uh, I discovered more about them by reading some of John zone's books about precisely the same, the same subject. Um, <clears throat> so you know that is just as a starter I don't know if you want me mm-hmm. to go on and uh, no, you know, let, maybe we can have a let, bit of a let's conversation. Let's pick up the theme
0: of irresponsibility because yes. I know it preoccupies John as well and in many ways tra- draws you to Seminar as a writer
2: Yes, um, thank you um, i begin by saying two things, the first is that we're all in a very privileged position now regarding Seminar because for the first time in the publishing history of Seminar, we've got Translations, which, rep, which enabled us to read them as he wanted to be read. <laughs> I, <hope. laughs> I think that's true be, because right. I've been told, I don't know right that, some of the earlier translations are not only hideously inaccurate, but some of them even have the plots, the endings changed because the endings had to be more conclusive than he wanted them to be, than, than George Seymour wanted them to be because they, um, he wasn't actually most of the time, even in... the the Maigret novels, contributing to a conventional crime genre. So if in real life many things are inconclusive, they don't end, you don't know what happened, that wasn't satisfactory for some of the earlier translators, so they just added a few extra (laughs) flourishes. So I think we're very privileged. Um, The second thing I would say is just autobiographically, in my case, how I came to um, start reading Simenor, it was a (coughs) a chance remark of a friend I'd had for many years. I mentioned this to John Simonon just earlier on. Uh, about 20 years or so ago, um, maybe 30 years, um, uh, a friend of mine in New York, a psychoanalyst at that time, quite old, said to me, um, if you want to know what it's like to live in a society in which everybody's betraying everyone else, read John Simonon's Dirty Snow. It's, that's one title. It's called The Stain in the Snow. Now, the friend of mine was Italian by origin. Uh, He'd um, been imprisoned in the Mussolini regime as a communist. He was a communist for a while. He fled to France. Um, He'd he'd, uh, been released and then fled to France. And in France, he was put in a concentration camp eventually and um, escaped from that camp at great risk and ended up in Portugal, where he told me the main danger he faced was starvation. But while he was in France, he said... um, what he experienced there of constant denunciation and danger with not just political activists and underground conspirators betraying each other, but as he put it, practically everybody betraying everybody else was the life he recognised immediately in this novel. So that's how I started reading it. I read the novel, I was deeply impressed. And I went on then to read um, uh, 20 or 30 of the other um, Romain Deux, the non-Megre novels. And in all of them, I, I found... Um, practically never put explicitly um, a picture of human action of human beings in the world which I found deeply interesting because it's one in which human beings are not authors of their lives um, the, the kind of the, the uh, um, uh, choosing self that has plans and projects this sort of phantom that inhaber- inhabits political philosophers like um, John Rawls or uh, um, even Mill, if you go back further. This just doesn't exist. What there are are um, human animals who acquire habits in a settled society, but then something happens. Um, either an impulse they've long been, long had suddenly expresses itself and unsett- their life is suddenly unsettled and they have to cope with what they've done, Uh, Or some event occurs in their lives, either a a war they're suddenly caught up in or um, they're suddenly ruined by, uh, uh, as one of the characters in one of the novels, the man who watched the trains go by, is ruined when his employer, in a long-standing respectable business, steals all the money from the business, including the central character's life savings. He's a late middle-aged male uh, whose life is suddenly turned completely upside down. So he's unsettled. What does he do? He starts, he doesn't plan, he doesn't think, he doesn't say, I need a new life plan now. He doesn't step back like some sort of ghost from Immanuel Kant and say, how do I deal with these? Segments? He just <laughs> sort of does things. He just does things and ends up committing a murder, actually. Um, and so I found that very, very intriguing because it was a type of genre which is, which is rare. I suppose in French you might have, in French literature, you might have l'étranger. Uh, there might be other examples, for example. But this is almost a whole genre. I think the Roman du Agnelli always have this theme of unsettlement and of, the, um, of a human agent, human, human beings, not being authors of their lives, but if having a kind of conventional or habitual self, which is a, an incrustation of habits, which is suddenly dissolved, and then what happens? It's not always disaster, but it often is. Um, and that in, intrigued me. Greatly, So I read everything and started writing about it, including in one or two of my books. And, uh, and I was fortunate enough to meet Jean Simonon later and, and to find what I didn't know at, until I met Jean Simonon. I did not know that Jean um, uh, Simonon often talked about the, the, what he called the irresponsibility of humankind, human irresponsibility, and that there are occasional references, explicit references. For example, in this book I reviewed in the New States, which uh, called When I Was Old, which is actually a series of notebooks he did in the 60s, three or four years he did in the 60s, just about his life and thoughts and impressions, in which he explicitly uses this, this, this phrase. He explicitly says, this is how I think of human beings, and if we start thinking of human beings like that, lots of things change. So that's really... I'm not saying he's a writer who wrote what he did in order to promote an idea. No, no. Definitely not. But there is an idea, at least this idea, maybe others, but certainly this, which I think is the key to a great deal of what he wrote. Not only the Romandur, but also to the character of May Gray. Because May Gray doesn't... When he's interacting with these suspects and criminals, he doesn't assume at any point that they had a clear intention of doing what they did. He doesn't assume that they knew why or they did what they did. He treats them as people who, like all of us, because they act without having a clear idea of why. Their lives occur, their lives unfold. They do things, certainly they do things, and their lives are changed, but it's not, not in the sense of, of authoring them. And we're all like this, so criminals aren't actually different. They're not a different category of human beings from the rest of us. They're just people to whom different events have happened and who re- re- reacted or, or acted in the way that he did. So I think that's a, a profound And I can't think of any other writer, Camus maybe, but it's not quite the same. I can't think of any other writer who's sort of ploughed that furrow so deeply. It's a very original uh, way of seeing and it's very unlike most crime genre because there isn't the, I just mentioned finally two points, there isn't the, there aren't the deep and sometimes almost tedious exp- explorations of human psychology you get in much, in much crime fiction I mean a writer I hugely um, uh, uh, admire Patricia Highsmith, I think she's a wonderful writer, but there's an enormous amount of sort of exploring inner states in, in her uh, I mean she's a genius at representing the inner states of her of her of her characters but in me would make her in, in different you hardly ever get the um, description of an emotion directly it's, it's never explicit it's never know. explicit for example in, in Monsieur Monde <clears throat> the businessman who leaves his wife and family for reasons he doesn't know takes a sum of money vanishes changes his suit of significant facts shaves his w- must- mustache off becomes anonymous on the first night he wakes up with tears in, in a rotten hotel lousy hotel he wakes up with tears streaming down his face now, Simon doesn't write. He felt sad. His tears <laughs> ran down his face. He couldn't help thinking this. He couldn't help feeling it. He just says, tears, ran down his face. The only thing he says is he felt a weight had been lifted from him. That's all he says. And so there's no psychology, partly because there's no interior self, really, to have this complex psychological baggage.
0: There's no need for it.
2: There's it? no need, or even any room for it. No. So that's sort of one way he departs from it. The other is the key isn't the plot even in the maigres, the key is not how did X murder Y, or even the conventional motive. How did? What were the What were the specific reasons? Was it the inheritance, or the or the money, or or, or revenge, or something like this? Mm. Uh, it's it's how did the criminal get prized out of settled life, if they'd ever lived a settled life, which many of them did. How did that happen and why did it happen? That's why I found him interesting. Um, yeah. A fascinating, almost inexhaustibly interesting writer.
0: But also coherent, consistent. Uh, mm. you know, for a writer who wrote in <laughs> so many different genres, who wrote simply so much, it's interesting that there is such 500 a 500
1: books? Uh, altogether, uh, if you add all the pseudonyms, yes, it's about twice what I said. So it's yeah, about yeah. five or 600. Hundred. Yeah, exactly. But you wouldn't consider these as... as well, let's... He would have put them aside, and so that'd be at least that'd be a But he actually did that. But it was part of what he called his apprenticeship, because he considered that he had to, you know, for him being a writer was was something that you had to learn Mm. first and foremost, just like a painter has to go through, uh, you know, has to learn how to draw, etc. And for him, the ten years that he spent. You know, churning out what he called that kind of pulp fiction was his way of doing, you know, painters' travel through Italy and copying the masters, etc. So he had a very strong um, uh, feeling of being a, uh, a craftsman uh, more than, than an intellectual.
3: Yeah, an
0: artisan craftsman. Uh, Ross, how do you bring that over then in trying to evoke for today's audience in a different language... This set of preoccupations that he had, and particularly to climb out from under the weight of bad translations and therefore bad images, really, of Mekwe and of Simonon that have, that have emerged in the English English speaking world?
4: Well, I think, I mean, first of all, the, um, I don't look at the previous translations. Good I, for you. There so. you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only way you can come yeah. to a classic is a retranslating a classic is by s- treating it as a new book, because mm-hmm. um, you'd be influenced one way or the other. Um, and I think, really, as a translator, the, the most important thing is to feel empathy with with the work, and it's something that the other translators and I should say that I'm not alone in translating Simonon, There are nine or ten of us, <laughs> um, 500 and we books, yeah. we mm-hmm. discuss this, and we're we're all absolutely fascinated by what is it that is so compelling for us as translators. And I think what, what really comes across is 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 Simenon's compassion. And that really, um, you know, Mekre doesn't judge his his characters. It's He's interested not in who done it, but why they done it. And it's sort of getting to the bottom of the characters' motivations or whatever it was in their lives that caused it. And I think it usually boils down to one of three things. It's either sex or money or some long-harbored resentment. And he very often asks a very direct question like you know did you have sex with your sister when you were kids or something like that so he 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 goes straight to what it is that makes this person tick but he sees himself as a sort of cross between a doctor and a priest and he in one book describes it as a repairer of souls and he has this role it's almost of a, a father confessor the books very often end up with he knows why this? That this character murdered, or whatever it was they did, and he draws out a confession, which is sort of cathartic for that person, and it ends not on a note of triumph with Megre going, "Yeah, you know, I got him," but a, a sort of a sadness, mm. and, I, and that I think for me is mm. is, is the compassion. It, it's that you know all of human life is there, and Maguire doesn't judge, and I think that's what makes it so so interesting to work on
0: absolutely yeah and it's strange isn't it because we're dealing here with a writer who puts a priestly figure Mekwe at the centre of many of his books and yet he's a figure he's an author who doesn't in many respects talk about religion or in any sense articulate a religious worldview I mean, do you think John that there was a kind of sense of you know some sort of shadow of religion going on in what he was writing about
1: I'm taking advantage of this to say that there are two paradoxes. One is precisely the one that you mentioned. Um, there is a well, you know, he was educated in a very strong, uh, strongly uh, Catholic uh, uh, upbringing. Uh, he was a choir boy for several years, so, you know, he knew his Bible and New Testament almost by heart. So it's he, not somebody who does not have any kind of link to that world. He just, at one point, fairly early in uh, in life, he was 15. Decided that religion, that kind of religion, anyway, uh, was was not his cup of tea. Uh, his cup of tea, and he just uh, let it behind him. But you can sense, I, mean, I feel personally, anyway, that you can sense some 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 links, anyway, to a certain view of you know compassion. Compassion, for example, that well. I don't know if it's exclusively Christian, but uh, clearly it is part of something that he inherited out of the good side that he kept from from his religious upbringing, uh, and therefore you can see in some books that I was mentioning uh, the, the notion of redemption, and I'm thinking more about Le Bourgmestre de Fern, the Bürgermeister of Fern, where you know this guy is a total uh, you know uh, egotist who at the end finds you know is drawn towards. Going beyond his personal miserly life and trying to do some good around, <coughs> excuse me, around him. Uh, so you, you have these these uh, you you can see these in, in kind of a um, these motifs um, almost as a um, uh, impressionistic way. I'm sorry, <clears throat> my voice is very bad and um, I've got a bit of a headache, so I'm not too good today in uh, in, in my in my speech. The other paradox I just wanted to bring up is that we talked about irresponsibility, we talked about that notion, and there's no man I know, I think, who was more driven to, to build his own life in, in a very uh, you know, coherent and, and responsible way uh, than he was. So you know, that's another paradox that I just thought I would point out.
0: A man who certainly never stopped working. <laughs> yes. No. Um, so we've got compassion, we've got um, redemption, <clears throat> but I don't think we've particularly got hope, have we?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> it seemed long. Well, um, not all of these stories of unsettlement end in final disaster.
0: No.
2: Um, I mean, you mentioned one where one of the, where the central character feels the need to do some good in the world. And even though Monsieur Monde, when Monsieur Mond comes back, doesn't seem to feel the need to do any good in the world, mm. he seems more clear-sighted and more... Able to live the life that he was before because I think he has more
1: acceptance than hope. You know? yes. Acceptance of a condition yes. rather than yes. Hope yeah, to really. make it better. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, People are reconciled to their existence. Uh, right. Some
1: of them. Um, whenever, whenever success. But there's effect.
2: also a dimension which we haven't mentioned, which I wonder whether the others present think is important as I do, which is that although Simenon wasn't a sort of enemy of bourgeois life in the way that, in a political way. Or um, many of the many of the uh, 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 characters uh, there harbour some sort of um, impulse which leads them to treat bourgeois life as a type of confinement. Made them, that's the way they feel it. They feel their duties It's con- certainly true of Monsieur Monde. It's the I think maybe in some ways is the novel I like his the best and maybe the, the greatest because for Monsieur Monde, life as a successful businessman with a family and lot quite a lot of money, he feels with nothing but fatigue and exhaustion. That's why, I mean, he he doesn't give that as a reason. He just leaves one day. But that's one of the impulses that impel him when he does leave. So there's a picture of... um, So what what the books are about, they're not, in a sense, bourgeois novels. They're not about building careers, having marriages, having divorces, having families. Uh, They're not about any of those things. They're about... um, uh, human beings who are either because of some interior impulse or because of something that happens to them, for the reasons you said, are prized out of the bourgeois life. Sometimes, in the case of Monsieur Monde, he hopes for a freer life. He thinks he might... In, in the demi-monde. He descends into the demi-monde of uh, uh, um, uh, nightclubs and uh, gambling houses and, and, and so forth, but he doesn't find... What he finds is, like Hemingway, the rich are different from us, they have more money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he finds that in the demi-monde, it's different from the bourgeois, they're very different, they have less money. Otherwise they're very constrained by their circumstances, just as, just as he was, and that may be part of the kind of epiphany he has at the central moment in the book, which is never explained because he said it's incommunicable. He said sometimes he just saw something about his life that reconciled himself to it, mm-hmm. about what he was trying to do in this demi-monde, the freedom he was looking for. Um, wasn't there. So not hope, maybe, if that involves some great transformation, mm. either political or personal.
0: Not hope and not freedom either. And not you freedom mean, either, no. never achieve it. But as acceptance, us, yeah. some kind of acceptance. So it's,
2: it's, they're certainly not tragic. No. Obviously. Always. It's you know they sometimes come to a in a way semi successful conclusion yeah.
4: um, yes, I mean I think that's interesting that point about class because maigret very often stands up for the yes. underdog yes. and very often if it 's somebody a maid or um, a sort of a working class person who's been murdered where the um, police are quite happy to sort of just brush it under the carpet. Maigret will be even more determined to get to the bottom of it and he often says that. And um, in his Megre's first case, his chief is actually a member of the sort of bourgeoisie, the aristocracy, who's married money and works basically because he'd be bored otherwise. And a murder happens in a bourgeois house nearby and they're all trying to cover it up. And they give the case to May Gray because it's his first case, in the hope that he won't solve it. Um, they're, they're trying to hush it all up. But and, he does. But he does. And, and so there's quite a lot of references to that. I think, cru- I think
2: it's a crucial strand, don't you?
4: Oh, absolutely. He always, always stands up for the, for the unsolved. Unders- his attitude
2: to the-, the-, the bourgeoisie is very, very ambiguous at best.
4: Yeah.
0: But then does May Gray achieve a certain freedom through the way in which, you know, it's in the nature of the genre that in many respects he's the man who can solve the case, he's the man who can kind of understand what's going on around him, but it doesn't seem to give him any great personal freedom the way he's presented by Simenon.
4: No, and in fact he has, he has difficulty entering some of those circles because he hasn't got the right kind of suit or he hasn't got the right kind That's of...
2: That's why that first novel, which was written later, wasn't it? Sorry, not the first of the novel. The, the first case, first, yeah. first case, it was written in the 30s, wasn't it?
4: I, d- oh, I don't no, remember the date. 50s. Day, it's, it's, 50s, yeah. 50s. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So it's, after lots and lots of other Megreys, dozens probably, mm. it's late, but it's, it shows Megray at the right the start, doesn't it?
4: Yes, yes.
2: And he's sort of almost awkward, isn't he, to begin with?
4: Oh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, he's yeah. completely wet behind the ears. And, and,
1: and, and not bourgeois. I Oswald. think it is important to not to, to highlight the fact that uh, there, is a, there is an underlying constant confrontation in all the Megreys between... Two views of what justice and law is all about. Uh, there is there is Comilio, I mean, typical Comilio who is the uh, invest- how, how did we decide to call it in English? Yes, Investigating in, in oh, mm-hmm. and uh, and and who who just needs to close a case as yeah. far as he's concerned. He mm-hmm. needs to tie it, it all all up, up and tie yeah, it um. up. Uh, Maguire needs to provide some form of closure uh, mm. to the victim, uh, or, or or even to the criminal as well, <laughs> and uh, and. I want to really highlight what you just said about, you know, for him it's more important to find, to find who the murderer of, uh, of a very ordinary person is uh, than go after the most sensational uh, case uh, in Paris mm-hmm. at that particular moment because that person is just as important as yeah. anybody mm-hmm. else.
4: And that comes across very strongly. And mm-hmm. that
1: is very, very strongly. It's a recurring theme in the, uh, throughout the books. In I'm other sure words, that bourgeoisie in itself yeah. is mm. something that he would think about. In, if you talk, if you spoke to him about bourgeoisie, his reaction would be, uh, uh, you know, he would he would be repelled. You know, it's not you know his view of the word bourgeoisie is not something that he mm. felt comfortable with. Although he comes from a petit bourgeois yes. milieu, our life was rather uh, comfortable to say the least. And therefore, but you know, it's more like what it all means behind that word. That he just, uh, he he just did not feel comfortable. He felt more comfortable with the ordinary mm. people.
2: I guess what I had in mind partly was that is he doesn't view the lives either of the criminal of the criminals in particular, and of these marginal figures whose life lives and fates he treats as equally as important as those of powerful or rich or settled people. But he doesn't view. The human lives he recounts as careers, which is a sort of bourgeois way of writing about it. Mm-hmm. If you think of French writers on the, I mean, this is why I think he's more like Maupassant than he's like some other French writers. He sees them as encounters with fate. Mm. Um, they don't go anywhere in particular, and they certainly don't have stages. Uh, you know, you, you do, like a ladder. You start off in this and you go further on and then you, then you end up sort of looking back on your life with satisfaction or non, not mm. satisfaction. They're much more discontinuous and, and, and abrupt. That's what I meant.
1: And, and that's where he's different from what people compare him to very often. He's very opposite to Balzac, in a way, from that point yeah. of view. Exactly. Uh, whereas he's so often compared to him, but you know, it's a very different angle on... on, on human. Opposite. You know, totally opposite, yeah.
0: Let's, let's move on to another aspect. As, I, as can I, seemed, I just add yeah. something? I
4: just wanted to add something to what John was saying about a sort of bourgeois life being confined. Um, there's one book called The Truth About Bebe d'Ange, and it's about a woman who kills her husband out of boredom. <laughs> <laughs> <Wonderful>. um, <laughs> I mean, that's a very simplistic way. But, you know, her life appears to be absolutely wonderful. They're well off. She lives in a beautiful house. She spends her time doing up her house, um, you know... Everything in her life seems perfect except the fact that her husband, who's a successful businessman and he just lives his life, has mistresses, you know, does his thing, ignores her completely, has no interest in her. And she kills him, poisons him in front of his whole family. And the book is about why she did it, and there are different sort of she she's completely impassive. She doesn't explain why. She doesn't explain anything. But the the sense is that she was driven to distraction by of that bourgeois
1: life. The suffocation uh, of a certain <laughs> bourgeois <laughs> provincial i would yeah. to say that it's probably also a bit of a love story, but that may be a bit, uh, <laughs> you know...
0: Anyway, this is where <laughs> I wanted to go. I wanted to go towards gender, yeah, because in many respects, Simonoy is a figure who puts male figures very much, at, male characters, at the centre of most of his stories, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, in many respects, his novels are, are studies in masculinity, or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, there is always a female figure in in the megre story in particular so what are the women doing what's their role in a in a Seminole novel
4: well they there's, obviously there's Madame Maigret who is the yeah. perfect wife um, etc and I think a lot of people have said you know oh Simonon, he's, he's a misogynist because a lot of his women are you know basically there to either get murdered, get laid or whatever and play or fairly poison or poison people or, or, yeah. or, but, but, but there is really a whole sort of gamut of, of women characters and particularly the killer grannies <laughs> <laughs> And there, there are two particularly, and I think these are my favourite women characters. So there's, um, in Maigra and the Old Lady, there's a woman called Valentine Besson, who's the widow of a beauty product magnate, um, fallen on hard times. And her maid is, is poisoned. Um, and it's thought initially that, that the murderer was after her. And it turns out that, and, and somebody else dies as well, accidentally, it happens to be the maid's brother. And it turns out to be her. And Megre says to her, you see, this crime is the crime of a woman, and of a solitary old woman even. It's one of those carefully planned crimes, lovingly cooked up over many hours, with the constant addition of little flourishes. <laughs> <laughs> so she was a very, very clever. She very, very cleverly plotted. It was all about jewellery and, and, you know, family plotting to get her jewellery. But, But she basically was... A killer, and and Maigret kind of knew this from the start. And the other granny is um, Bernadette Amorel. In Maigret is angry, and she's wonderful. She's pretty old, um, and she escapes the vigilance of her family. They all live in a sort of extended family, and sort of kidnaps the gardener's son and gets him to drive her 100 kilometres, he can't really drive, to <laughs> virtually kidnap Megray to come and investigate the death of her granddaughter, Monita. It was presumed a drowning accident, but Bernadette reckons she was killed and she has decided that Megray has to come and investigate it. And Megre by this time has retired, but she manages to virtually kidnap him under his wife's nose and get him to investigate this case. Um, and... In the end, Bernadette shoots her son-in-law who'd had an illegitimate daughter by his brother's wife and she says, since there's no other way out and no-one had the guts to do it, it may as well be an elderly grandmother who takes care of it. Mm. So, so really, you know, there are grannies with agency. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but grannies with character?
4: Oh, with character.
1: Yeah. Lots Absolutely, yeah. And not only in the Megre. I dispute the fact. You know, I, I obviously you, you're right. You know, out of all these novels, that not. You know, my father was a man, so obviously he wrote more about what he thought he knew best. And you know, there are more male uh, central male characters than women characters. But his female characters, I think, are when they are there, they're <laughs> they're extremely interesting. I think maybe is one. Uh, and you have a whole string of non megre novels where the central character is is a female. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, or, or equal, uh, of equal interest. Uh, I think, for example, um, uh, the, uh, Les fiancées de Monsieur which is uh, translated in English as to... Uh, the engagement, yeah, the right? engagement. The engagement. Uh, the engagement is all seen from the point of view of the man, but in fact the woman is extremely interesting, and just to give you an example, we're, going to, we're wor- working on an adaptation of this for, for film, where the whole, book is going, the whole book is going to be adapted from the point of view of the, of the woman. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it's not that obvious, but these characters are, are you know, are very interesting in their own right. Um, I think of Tanjan as well, which is, you know, a beautiful uh, story about a woman coming back, uh, you know, into a family and being the center of the whole family and rebuilding just out of nothing. Uh, it's some kind of meaningness into that family mm. uh, with no rewards because she's discarded at the end and that's it. You know, it's pure um, uh, selflessness. So I think you know, we need to, to look at it today um, with a slightly different uh, point of view. And um, I'm encouraged to say what I'm saying from the readership of Simenor, which is becoming more and more uh, even between mm. men and women. And there I certainly was an
0: age when it was largely read by men, wasn't there? Ninety
1: percent, but today it's about even. So, you know, um, it must say something about what what the books are about. Yeah. Now, out of this interaction
0: then between men and women, you also have the central role of sex as a force, as an emotion, as a driving sure. energy, as yeah. often a reason for crime yeah. in the seminal novels. Why, why, John, do you think that sex comes to the fore in this unstated way, really, as a kind of something that people can't control, but it's something that is at the centre of their emotions? It's for the reason you just said, uh, I think. Uh,
1: it is a the centre of our it, emotions.
2: It, 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 it's at the heart of many human emotions, but it's also the part of many human lives, if not most, that is the least subject to, con- to, to long-term control. I mean, the, all, all the social... Conventions aim to control it. But not only the social conventions, but the plans and projects that human beings have. Aim, I mean, aim at least to bring it under control in the sense that the sexual impulses are subordinated to these longer-term plans and projects, uh, work projects, moral projects, political projects. um, And here he is, I think, a bit like Morpisson. Definitely, I agree. Um, uh, Suddenly, a sexual... um, Uh, situation arises or a sexual um, impulse uh, becomes uncontrollable um, and changes the entire course of a human life from what... um,
0: Breaks through conventions, narratives and so
2: on. Narratives, but also breaks through whatever habits or projects Mm. or beliefs or values the person concerned thought they had. In other words, what they thought ruled their lives turns out not to rule it to the, in the way that um, sexual energy can, can rule it. So I guess it fits into um, this model or this this not model this um, theme uh, of uh, Simonon's, according to which um, we're not order, authors of our life. In other words, if so there was back in your responsibility back that in that responsibility. In, <laughs> in other words, if we if we were looking at a human life and we say there's a chapter here in which there's a tremendous amount of sexual upheaval which changes all the subsequent chapters. Human human agents are not in the position in which to say, "Well, I don't want that. I'm going to delete that chapter and go back to what the story was before that happened." <laughs>
3: no.
2: um, uh, not because of Freudian reasons, particularly. Although it's not because it'll be repressed, although mine being come out later, but simply because it's uncontrollable. And that's very like Maupassant, because what you, have, if you when you read his accounts of um, murders and so on emerging from sudden passions in French seaside hotels. <laughs> People, two people pass each other, both married in, in, the, in the foyer of a hotel. Twenty-four hours later, they're in bed. Twenty-four hours after that, one of them's dead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> murdered by. When you, when you when you when you read something like that, hardly any planning, hardly any in- interior life at all. Just a series of energies which produce a certain set of events which they then have to have to have to deal with. So, and that's I think like um, except that Maupassant's mo- accounts of this are mostly short stories. Mm. But in, in Simenon, they're, they're short novels and therefore more... Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah
4: no, and I, but I think it's also important to say that it's not just male sexual oh, no. desire. Yeah, and no. I think one yeah. of the things that's really interesting about Simenon is women and sex. Mm. And, I mean, The the Blue Room, I think, is perhaps the... Very good book, yeah. The, the steamiest of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and, and that flag. is where... <laughs> um, where sex is initiated by the woman, and she actually says, Bes moi And that's really quite extraordinary. I mean, it, it reads like something that could have been written today. Um, and everything sort of goes downhill from there on. I mean, you know, th- their lives going out of control as a result in of... In fact, this, if, anyone, you know,
2: if anyone even attempts to author their lives, it's more often the women, isn't
4: it? Yeah, and, and also women using sex as revenge in... Um, Um, the the daughter of the killer granny, Valentine Besson's daughter, Arlette, she's portrayed as a sort of nymphomaniac who's using sex as revenge. Um, Her stepfather made a pass at her when she was 18. She was in love with her stepbrother who rejected her. And that kind of made her angry and bitter against men, and then she spent the rest of her life just going to bed with every man she met, not for pleasure, but out of a sort of disgust. And she says, it's not pleasure, it's out of revulsion, um, but you can't understand. She's telling Maigret about this. You can't understand. And I think she's a very interesting character, the way she uses sex like that. As a sort of psychological her, her
1: obsession. Her sister, in a way, uh, well... But- Exact opposite is is, is another Arlette, uh in in picats who actually she 's a victim, but she she is not an infomagc, but she really you know her life is is, is all about sex and she enjoy, and the opposite is she enjoys it and she 's just because you know it's not something common at the time that she falls victim of people are going to use that against her and eventually kill her. But you know, as as a person, mm-hmm. she's definitely a totally liberated and totally um, open person who who really just enjoys having sex mm-hmm. and um, and is not afraid of doing it.
0: Another um, th- interesting dimension of Simenon's novels is that mm-hmm. in many respects, there's very little explicit politics. Mm. There's a sense that almost he's a kind of non-political writer, yet one who's living through a time when an enormous number of political upheavals are happening. That can't be accidental. I mean, there's a deliberate wish to keep politics, even to keep the noise of political life, shall we say, out of the novels, which often gives it quite, makes it quite difficult to locate them in a particular chronology. You can't work out who's in power or whatever in France at the time. Why such a, a determination to keep that out of the novels?
1: Well, essentially because he feels that that is not essential to the characters that he's writing about. This is just an environment, an environment that is no more or no less than a particular, um, you know, uh, whether in time or in place, than any other place. So he will use sometimes uh, as a background, uh, but very, not very often, the war, for example. He's done it once, only once, in Le Trin, we were talking about that uh, before, and he only does it because he do, he's not going to talk about the war. He just needs to have two people. It's, it's all a device. It's a device, to create, it's a device a to create an environment which is a threat, which is uh, out of which these two people are going to um, create a, a, a bubble of uh, of uh, insulation. So he needs to have that extreme environment. But it's not because it's the war. It could have been any other war, any other any other time. It's a little bit the same thing, by the way, with uh, with Dirty Snow um and um And I mentioned uh, a book that he wrote uh, that takes place during the Stalinist years in uh, in georgia uh, and here again it's it's it 's probably in fact the one where he reveals the most he goes as far as he has ever been in terms of showing um, a, a real sentiment of revulsion for that type of environment. You feel in the book that. You know, he's not neutral as he usually is. What was in this region. translated under the title? Was it was used? called The Window of the Way, I think, or Across the Way or something like that. And clearly it, it's very interesting because it was written, as I said, at the same time that he uh, wrote a series of articles about his, uh, his travels in, in the Ukraine. And you can sense here that He's not judging, but mm, uh, he's got an opinion about it, yeah. and uh, and that's probably the only book that I haven't. Well, by the it, way, that's the, except, that's the
0: exception, isn't it? The way he's actually sense in, the taking that, a stand, right?
1: And, and and there may be some others, but I must confess that I haven't read them all. I'm still reading, <laughs> and uh, therefore, you know, I may um, I may have missed one. More.
2: Would it also be true that one of the reasons for this very systematic avoidance was that he didn't? Th- I mean, you can accept this or not accept, but he didn't think that shifts of political regime changed the, the essentials of human life. No, that's exactly mm-hmm. it. It's
1: not essential to who human beings are. Yes. No. We, it's just part of, you know, we, we don't change, these regimes change, Yeah, uh, but men and women don't change.
0: Yeah, But is that good enough when, you know, in his case, he's describing a world and he's living himself through a world France in the middle of the 20th century where for example you have large scale um, persecution of jewish people which doesn't come through in any sense in his writings
2: it does um, in the engagement actually
1: well uh, in the engagement uh, well n- not, not large scale persecution no, no, but but but, one come, person, one but, but but definitely antisemitism is is there but not as antisemitism again you know you will find your two particular characters of Two Jewish characters, one in the uh, in the uh, engagement, the other one in the Little Man from Marconjels, uh, who do represent um, the alien in in a very tight environment. So you know, there happened to be well, because of the time the right the right uh, uh, personification of that were Jews, um, and um, but again, you know he didn't see himself as having to, you know, he kept his own views as, uh, about, you know, the workings of the politics, et cetera, to himself. It was not it was not for him to start making comments or statements about them in the novels. He didn't see that as part of his um, his duty. And some people blame him for that, but look, after all, you know, it's his choice. Uh, it doesn't mean that he felt it was right. It just means that it was not his, uh, you know... That was not his job. There were some other people to take care of that. It was like Maupassant again in that respect, wasn't he? In
2: Maupassant, <clears> including <throat> in his novels, Maupassant. I mean, there are, there are regime shifts in some of his novels.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but they're taken as episodes in the lives of the characters, not as having any large significance, That at least that Maupassant is interested in. In fact, he wrote a non-fiction book, didn't he? would translate translated to Maupassant called Floating or something like that, a float. In English, uh, which is a sort of diary uh, and which represents society itself as sort of being afloat. There are shifts of regimes, but the lives of most people go on in their essentials. Some will get richer, some will get poorer, some will be persecuted, some will be the persecutors. But the life, the life of, of most people will go on as it did before.
1: Yes, and then, well, in his view, again, what he was looking was what is, was common in men, what didn't, what didn't make them different. So for mm-hmm. him... Uh, you know, at, a, at one particular time, the the outcast would be a Jew because that's the way it was. But if we have to readapt that book, for example, for the screen today, strange, interestingly enough, when we did that for French television, uh, the the right way to do it so that people understood what we were talking about was to make the Jew became uh, a Muslim, and and in fact, it's it's the same story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a tight-knit community rejecting outsiders. <laughs> and, uh, and that, to him, is what he's trying to communicate, how, you know, the tragedy of that. Yeah.
0: Ross, do you feel you're, you're translating novels that in some sense do have silences in them, have deliberate ways that, that, that in a way, Simonon <coughs> sets up plots that enable him to move around things that he doesn't talk about?
4: Um, I'm, I'm. I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, he he sets up a particular plot <laughs> and writes about the people yeah. in that yeah, situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and yeah. But yeah. we,
0: well, we never step outside the plot. We don't see a wider world, do we?
4: That's no, what because makes them quite
0: claustrophobic in many
4: respects. But that's what creates that fantastic sense of place—the sort of yeah. small town, mm. provincial mm. France. Mm. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have to expect a writer to comment on everything that's going on in, mm. in the outside world, I mean, you know, it, it's a kind of escapism, these books you know, he has created a whole world and we go into that world and for a couple of hours or the time it takes us to mm. read it we're completely inside that, that world that he's created. And the paradox
2: is that there are often stories of people who try to escape and fail mm.
0: That if they try to step outside the bubble then everything yes. collapses. Yeah. Yes, yes Flight doesn't bring freedom. I want to open it up to the room anyway, because I'm sure there's many people here who'd have some views about uh, Simonon as a writer. And uh, please do ask questions. Let's keep them relatively brief so that we give time for people to respond and indeed for other people to ask questions. Who would like to uh, contribute? There's one. We need to wait for the microphones.
3: Georges Simon grew up in a city on the fracture zone of Protestantism and Catholicism and the French and Dutch languages. When he was a teenager, it was under German occupation, and when he was was approaching middle age, he was living in Vichy, France. Would you like to talk about what effect that had on him and what he wrote?
1: Uh, Number one, I, I should correct you, Liège is definitely not in a fracture zone between Flemish and Walloons. I mean, it's totally Walloon. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm but, m- but move thirty kilometres north, and you're in a Dutch-speaking Maastricht. Yeah, but they... Yeah, in fact, (laughs) sorry, I'm not trying to express any kind of nationalistic view here by by, by either that gesture or by reaction. Anyway, the general issue about him being in this in this
0: fracture zone and one who experiences German occupation twice in his life.
1: I think that was very important. And and, in one in one place, you know, because he, he did leave a lot of little you know notes, whether it is in when I was old or in his memories and things like that. And clearly, uh, you know, uh, as we just said, he saw the devastation of occupation. And in fact, one of the things he said is that it takes uh, a, a country uh, a few years to recover from a war, but it takes generations to recover from an occupation. And I think that uh, the very fact that you're talking about it today still shows how important, you know, how difficult it is for anyone to, uh, to either look at it from the outside or insiders, if we're talking about the Belgians or the French, uh, having to deal with having been occupied. And, um, and clearly, uh, you have, again, you know, not a statement about, uh, about the generalities or a statement about the good or evil of, of uh, you know, political systems or whatever, but uh, a study of humankind in those circumstances. Uh, as John said, you, you find it very clearly in one particular book, which is Dirty Snow, uh, where you feel the oppression of what being occupied means. But, you know, being occupied can, only be, can also mean being occupied by your own people. It's not, you don't need to necessarily be invaded to feel that kind of uh, situation.
0: But one of the great challenges of, of occupation is that it imposes choices on people in terms of how they respond to that Occupation, and you don't really get that through Simonon. And yet, Simonon's own family life, etc., was influenced by this. His own brother was involved in uh, wartime activities that caused him he, to flee from Belgium after the war. So,
1: there are. Well, it's, we could go on for that. That's very interesting. I don't think it imposes choices. I'm not sure that everybody who is in an, in an occupied precisely that, I, I would say that my father would dispute that. He, he would definitely say, you know, it's not as if everybody in an occupied country makes a conscious so- choice about being either a hero or a traitor or a collaborator opposite. or whatever. Might the
2: opposite. Wouldn't
1: in it? fact, they just try to survive. And I challenge anybody to, you know, none of us here is in a situation of having to survive such a situation. I would challenge anyone who wants to pass a judgment uh, to just think of what it means. And, you know, now, having said this, don't misunderstand me because, uh, yes, there was a collaborator in my, in my, uh, in my family and that was uh, my father's brother. Um, and um, quite sincerely, I know very little about him and he, he was fully responsible for what he did, but did he really make that choice, with, you know, as a conscious decision? Wasn't he, was it not that kind of a slippery slope in which he found himself? I have no idea. The one thing that I do know, and this I'm coming back to the notion of responsibility and irresponsibility precisely in in the environment of the family, is that whether he was responsible or not was not really the issue from my father's point of view because my father actually gave him the advice and he said, now you have only two choices. Either you surrender or you go to the foreign legion. Mm -hmm. And you know, in one way or the other, you pay for it.
0: Well, he went to the foreign legion and, and he died for, in it. And he paid for it, yeah. you know.
1: So, you know, and, and actually fighting for another country than, than his. Mm. So, you know, it's easy to look at it from the point of view of, you know, what, what are morals in a situation like that? This is the question that precisely my father asked in his books. And he saw that. He saw that in the uh, occupation of Liège that in, uh, when he was very young. And he saw that people who had all the most, who were giving lessons to everyone, how they actually behaved. And let's be honest, I was asked a question. You know, not long ago, uh, my father was, You know, people thought he should have been more anti-German. What does it mean to be more anti-German? Was Mitterrand more anti-German than my father? Was Sartre Mm -hmm. more anti-German than my father? Mm -hmm. Who was more anti-German than my father in the war? Uh, not many people, you know. Some people made a conscious choice to go. And even, even the young guy who's 16 or 17 years old who goes out and, and becomes a, uh, a freedom fighter. And I, I'm very much, you know, I, I think these guys are real heroes. But how conscious were they when they were doing that?
2: By the way, in this regard, um, the person who introduced me to Simona, who I mentioned <coughs> earlier on, who had lived in... Um, internal occupation, you might say, in Mussolini's it- Italy and being put in jail for three years, and who then ended up in Vichy France, uh, which was occupied by the Germans. Um, the reason he said to me, if you want to know what it's like to live in an occupied country, is that he knew very well that in Britain, no one apart from people who lived in the Channel Isles
0: yeah, in the
2: Second World War, knows what it's like to, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And similarly in America, no one who's spent being grown up and spent their whole lives, unless they've gone to some other part of the world. And gone, except American Indians. Except so American Indians. Well, Indian. some might say American blacks too, actually. Yeah. But uh, uh, know exactly what, um, what, what that means. So it requires an effort of imagination for us to enter into that very
0: different experience. Right, let's move on to another question
5: the theme of the festival is utopias and <laughs> one of the uh, issues in the title is dreams i'd love to know what in your views maigret and perhaps maigret as Simonon's alter ego dreamt of what were what was what was what did he aspire to what were his dreams as expressed through the through the novels
0: Yes, I'm conscious that we seem rather a long way <laughs> from the world of utopias when we're in the world of uh, seminars. We've been well, probably tacitly <laughs> saying. Yeah. Ros, what do you think about that? What does Megray dream about?
4: Well, he often dreams about his cases. Um, he... <laughs> There's always a point towards the end when he's groping towards the answer where he goes into a sort of trance, dream-like state and all the characters yeah. are sort of swilling around in his head and he, he goes into this kind of secondary state where, where you know, he, he almost dreams the answer. Um, in terms of dreams and aspirations, you don't really get much sense of of inner life.
0: But this is an anti-utopian writer, isn't he, John? <laughs> well, he is, but there is a, on the whole, but
2: there is a utopia floats up from time to time. Uh, as it, partly in when I uh, was old, in this set of notebooks that he wrote, but also even in the May Gray novels. And what's May, what's, what's May Gray's Come Seemann Utopia? <laughs> it's one in which criminals and social... Um, uh, um, marginal social people who fall out of society are viewed with a kind of dispassionate compassion. That's his utopia. And I think he's fully aware that it's unrealisable.
0: He's that certainly it, not dreaming of a world without crime, because human nature <laughs> no, causes crime. No, there couldn't
2: be a world without crime. In other words, he would, he would see as maybe a malign utopia, I suspect, a world that was constructed to be so perfect that it didn't have any crime in it
3: because
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> what that would mean would be suppressing some people's natures and so on and who would have otherwise actually become criminals. He would see that as a dangerous utopia but his own utopia would be a world in which there will be crime, there will be all kinds of, there will be murders there will be all kinds of things like that but in which those who commit them, and he says this quite explicitly actually yeah. in, in When I Was Old, he said, I, I imagine he says, I imagine a world in which instead of condemning and immediately sort of uh, giving the whole weight of morality against such um, human events, shall we say. Instead, we treat them with um, understanding and a kind of dispassionate compassion. But then he says, but of course, I know this is never going to happen. <laughs> but it is
3: there. Yeah.
0: We have another question there. You could have the microphone.
3: Yes, still on this kind of central concern of, of people and, and actions being a product of conditions, um, I suppose there's a connection perhaps to be made there where there's a, an absence of depiction of regime change or, or being caught up in human events or so on. Um, and also with, with May Gray perceiving this and accepting it in others and that enabling him, him to do his job and um, puzzle things out eventually. But he also perceives that in himself and it seems like in every other book that someone's saying to him, what are you going to do next? And he says, I don't know. I don't know. Is and, a consistent or, or what are you thinking? I'm not thinking anything. Mm. And then the, the one episode where there's an American who's come to study his method and is confounded by this absence of method. Yeah. John,
0: do you want to respond to that?
3: I, I, I'm not sure I understood the
0: question itself. Well, the sense that always with Megre that the figure is set up as somebody who doesn't know what he 's doing doesn't know what he 's going to do next is yes, in some well, sense of a loss
1: well, i think it is it is again uh, another way of of expressing what we 've been talking about for this whole hour, which is really you know um, he moves along as, as, as he, you know as a product of of, mechan- of his own, you know, biological and sensible mechanisms. There's no, there's no particular plot in his, uh, in his uh, approach to the, uh, um, to the crime or to to the case. So in a way, I, you know, I think he is himself an example of mm. that the word here is not is not right but I mean precisely of having you know of being the product of our own you know of our own destiny in a way I mean, he just moves along as uh, as he can
2: he's not an exception to the general responsibility no he
1: himself is exactly. it's an important
2: point he's not a godlike figure who sort of looks on these poor suffering humanity and mm-hmm. sort of moves them around and solves their problems and he's, he's, he's himself he's, the, he's entrained is that the French word he just moves yeah, yeah, along yeah. he moves yeah. along as they do
1: and he fails sometimes, yeah. you, know, he's, he's, you know, there are some cases where he's borderline even responsible for, you know, uh, yes. at one point he's responsible yeah. for a guy, I mean, he's not responsible per se, but you know, it's out of his own inquiry that he finds there's a guy actually commits suicide, mm-hmm. because he's being followed by Meg Ray and uh, you know, that starts the whole case.
0: The, the literary conceit that's going on behind here, of course, is that there is the author, who is in charge, who does know what, how to set up the plot, mm-hmm. who knows where he's going in writing the book, even when describing figures who don't
1: seem to know where they're going. But did he always know? Well, well they, that, <laughs> that was going to be my question. <laughs> you know? There is one book where I cannot think that he didn't know. I mean, the way Blue Room is constructed, there's absolutely no way that he could have constructed that book without knowing how, you know things were going to go. Out. But I think that these books are the exception. I think that more or less, you know, and the way he described them, Now, I don't think it was conceit. I think he really, he really was trying to express how he, how he was working. Uh, you know, he needed to find a click, what he called the click. He needed to find the, the event that was going to, uh, to trigger all the rest of the, uh, the series of events that he's going to uh, write in the book. Mm-hmm. But once he had discovered that, uh, as he explained it, he would simply follow his characters, uh, follow them along. So and, in a way, it was an improvisatory style of writing, which would lead where, and where it led. Absolutely, and he wrote that way, and that's, that's what he took uh, 10 years to, to learn, you know, because that was his, his, own, his own way of doing it. I mean,
2: this is rather deep in a way, because it's that as an author, he wasn't authoring
1: he wasn't authoring. His what the, characters they, were more authoring than he was once yeah. he'd found the
2: character. In fact, I remember reading, uh, it might have been him When I Was Old or somewhere else, that taught in his later years, when he found writing the novels harder than he'd done when he was younger. And they took him longer, a few days longer yep. anyway. Yeah. Um, and more energy. And more energy. It? And he said he began at times to, to become oppressed or burdened by the, the, the characters themselves. So, yeah. They were sort of doing things, living out their lives
0: uh, in ways he hadn 't thought of, and then he had to somehow write up. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel that that you 're dealing with an author who who knew where he was going in his writing
4: um, i mean I think that that May Gray, um because he doesn't have these strict methods, that gives him a kind of an openness to go with the flow, which is his strength. He doesn't sort of go around about with fixed police methods. In fact, he shocks some police officers by not taking fingerprints or something because he yeah, has yeah, his yeah. A, a completely his way, different way of doing things. So, so I think that's partly why he's so successful, because he doesn't have fixed ideas. He's listening all the time and watching... And, and is able to change direction. Yeah.
0: I see another question here, and then, yes, we'll come to the others.
5: Um, I was just wondering, one of the elements that we haven't touched upon yet um, in the Meghane novels are his colleagues, so like Jean Lapointe, yeah. they always feature. <laughs> um, and it's just coming to my mind, because one of the things I think is he's such a... A father figure to them as well, you know, in in and his character, and it just made me think of what you said at the beginning about how important it was for your father to be a father first. So I just wondered if you could comment on that from any angle point of view.
1: A sort of familiar in, cast of in, characters. In, well, it's absolutely true. In fact, if you you may know that I, that um, uh, his, uh, he lost a, a daughter, uh, you know, a few few weeks after birth, and and therefore you know one of the big uh, the big falls in, uh, in Maigret and Madame Maigret's life is the fact that they're childless. And clearly the, uh, the uh, you know, his, his Janvier, La Lapointe, especially Lapointe, Pointe, uh, are, are to him very much like children, and he calls them that way. Uh, les enfants or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, that's, uh, that's his way of looking at them. He's and they great, all call
0: know. him chef or whatever they call him. The, they his uh, chef they turn man. to him, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah.
1: So, uh, but it's a bit different, you know, but for them, and that's why, in fact, you know, out of the many, because there are about four or five altogether that come in recurring, we chose to keep Janvier and Lapointe in the uh, in the new series because they are the ones who were with whom we can show that more than with the others. Uh, Lucas is, is a little, you know, from that point of view, would not have been as as interesting, for example. Yeah, clearly there is a father children relationship there.
0: I saw a couple of other questions there. There's have the microphone over
3: that: um, I, I read several of the novels in French quite a few years ago, and I recollect that there was a, a, a restricted vocabulary that he used, a very strictly uh, limited vocabulary. Is my recollection correct? Um, and what was the significance of it, um, if it was? Um, was it idealistic or was it materialistic? And can you say anything else about it? It's certainly
0: a a stripped-down vocabulary, isn't Mm. it, where there's little by way of adjectival development often in in his writing. Very few
2: abstract
3: uh,
0: terms. Why do you think that is, John?
2: Well, I mean, I think John Simonard could could answer it better than me, but I can comment.
1: Okay. well, I'm not sure what you mean by materialistic or whatever, but just he was very much aware of the fact that he wanted to use as few words as possible, and he wanted to use words that had the most general and at the same time Specific, it may find feel a bit contradictory. Meaning, so that by reading them, you had your own immediate uh, feeling of what he was talking about. And he called these words mots matière," which in which translates well. How would that translate? Subject, uh, subject, subject words. Uh, yeah, ma- subject. Yeah, it's yeah. more than that, you know. Matter words, you know, and that, that, that in himself had, you know, have a uh, have a weight. Uh, he, called about, he, he wrote about the weight of words uh, that have an inherent weight that goes just beyond the flourish of the description. Uh, so he was very keenly aware of that.
2: It might have been a deliberately crafted style in response to some advice he got, because the one the one, literary, so. the one literary mentor he had was Colette, the writer and she's supposed to have said to him, this is fine, but take all the damned
1: literature out of (laughs) this. Coming from Colette is interesting. (laughs) I would say
4: that there's a difference between pared-down style and vocabulary, and I think Ah, his vocabulary is actually very rich. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the style. He doesn't... I mean, every word has its place, and there's no superfluous words yeah. but the, the language is, is, is rich, than the is, is yes. very rich and I think that's one of the, the, the challenges is concrete, and, of it's translating. Concrete. Yes, it's concrete but it's minimalist yes. and every word is there for a reason and yes. there's nothing there that shouldn't be there yeah. and and I think one of the interesting things about translating him is trying to preserve that yes. because you find sometimes when you, you start translating it that there's what the French call a sort of foisonnement where you, you're, you're you have a lot more words than he did and yes, then you have yeah, to, yeah. to pare it down to get that same sort of very, very sort of pared down, but it's, it's rich vocabulary, I would I say. can
0: imagine it's a challenge to translate him and keep the book at the same length as he had achieved.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, normally English is, comes out about 10% shorter than French, yeah, but, but in, in the, in the case... What that's, and I think that's really where I've come to appreciate him as a writer is, is because you have to, to really unpick what he's doing to, to, to translate it, and you see how actually carefully crafted it is. Um, so, so I wouldn't say it's a, it's a limited vocabulary at all.
0: No, we had another question in the middle there.
2: Thanks. A quick question about bodies of water.
0: Um, in a lot of the Grey novels, um, uh, I'm... Involved with recording the audio book versions of them, and in the ones we've done so far, the twenty-seven we've done so far, there's been a body of water in every one. <laughs> it's a sea, Once it's you a start river, for it's them, a yeah. canal. Yeah. In some, it's even a, the sun reflecting off a puddle. And I'm just wondering what, if any, there's uh, either a biographical or a, um, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking symbolic. for. Now, but a symbolic reason for the inclusion of
1: water everywhere. <laughs> You're there nodding, is, John. There yeah, I, I mean, there, well, I can I can be a bit flippant by saying that he was an Aquarius, but uh, <laughs> which is the truth. Um, but yes, water is extremely important to him, and uh, and the only, you know what I think I can tie it to is the fact that he lived in a city that where the river La Meuse is extremely important for the whole life of that city, and you know, especially in those days, it was it was like the main. Artery of that body of uh, social body and he was extremely sensitive to that he was a very keen swimmer he loved the water, he loved it in every shape and form he was also a good sailor Uh, so you know, yeah that's a very astute uh,
0: but water is also a mysterious thing that tends not to do not to end up doing good
1: or doing what he wanted to do I don't think he saw it as a threat. I think, but look, maybe, uh, maybe we'll find instances where it's not the other way round. I could add something yeah. not about
2: water, but I can't think of another. When I started reading lots of him, I couldn't think of another writer in which, in in, in whose work smells, yeah. were as important, not even more In other words, if you think of most writers, like, they describe initially what human beings see, or hear, mm. or then you might have touch. But it's a very powerful element in is it, is it not? Well, all Everything the
4: senses, or, smell, taste. It
2: smells significant you know I mean? because yeah, other people yeah. ignore it, or at least there's <laughs> yeah. not much yeah. in it. So the smells of sweat, the smells of this, mm-hmm. the smells of that. Um, uh, uh, I found that very powerful. And indeed, in Monde, he Monde, uh, he says he returns to the world he's ignored when he stops being a businessman. He says, what, is he, what happens next? He said he starts smelling things. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. He, when he was a businessman in his family life and his business life, he didn't smell anything. Because not that there was nothing to smell, mm. but he just didn't pay any attention to it. He starts smelling things, perhaps because he's <laughs> living in different types of hotels, I don't know as well. But, yeah, but, it's, uh, it's but, a, it's but that's not the, it's not the smell, reason. Huh? He's reborn as a, as, a, as, a, as a creature of his sensations.
0: Walter, Ross?
4: Yeah, <laughs> there's water. Um, but he was—he was a fisherman, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he, uh, he may grow he a he fisherman. A, he was yeah, very but, much involved. Uh, make, true. That's another reflection of attraction to water. He has a little yeah. house by the Loire uh, River where he goes fishing very, very when he can. Um, I remember myself. You know, we spent a lot of time, you know, doing things in and around water. You know, uh, so. I cannot say much more because there is no metaphysical um, meaning to that. It's just something that was very much part of his life, and key to it. But to go and find deeper uh, Freudian relationships, frankly, I'm sorry, I may disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> but
4: it's useful for throwing money into or bodies into no. as no, well, no, no, isn't it? No. <laughs>
0: I'm conscious that there's another translator of Maigret at the back uh, of Simonon, in the form of Sean Whiteside. I mean, do you, Were you being conscious of the things that uh, Ross has said about the stylistic devices of, of Simonon?
3: Um Oh, you're taking me rather by surprise here. Sorry, that, was my, that was my <laughs> intention. <laughs> um, I think the, the language is pared down to the minimum um, in a way that you have to... Um, as a translator, obviously capture. But it is very dense, it's very rich, um, and it's deceptive as well. Um, I was thinking, when we were talking about water, there's a passage, two passages, in fact, in My Friend Maygray, which I've just translated, wonderful, wonderful book, um, where he looks through the sea at the landscape underneath it. And I think there is a theme there, somehow, of... There's also the question of him not using method. Um, and there's also um, a hallucination in it. But that seems to be how he gets through. Th- he makes the medium transparent so that he can see the landscape underneath. Um, and that seems to be the theme, the theme of that one. Um, so some, somehow water is metaphysical, I think, there. Um, but yes, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful experience. Um, it's very tactile. The smells are very important. In my friend megre there's a lot of um, bouillabaisse, bouillabaisse and wine, mm-hmm. um, and it really made me want to go to that part of that part of the world uh, one day. Um, I was actually going to ask you a question, though. Um, on my way here, I've taken a break from translating Megre to read some Dostoevsky. And you've mentioned Ropesson, <laughs> you've, you've mentioned Balzac, but the murders at the heart of Dostoevsky's four great novels seem to me to be very Simonon-like. Does anybody have a thought about that at all? Uh, I Doesn't matter if you don't.
2: Well, I have written a little bit on the differences between the writers, which are enormous, but there may be similarity. I mean, the differences are, one difference is that Dostoevsky explicitly sets, even crime and punishment is in a context of Christian ideas,
0: <coughs> religious
2: ideas, that's what it's all about, uh, and Karamazov even more and so on. So, I mean, in other words, religion is not, it's not absent, it's absolutely ubiquitous in uh, most of Dostoevsky's uh, uh, novels of murder, uh, which murders occur, so that's one big difference. And also, there's, I think, more of a focus on inner, inner life, interior life. But what did you mean by saying the murders were the same? You mean uncalculated?
3: They just happen. Uncalculated, animal, um, impromptu. I'm thinking of the the murder in Brothers Karamazov, where Dmitry kills his father. That might be more, but not in
2: Crime and Punishment. No,
3: it's the opposite. I it's the opposite because.
2: That at
3: least as Dostoevsky
2: creates the character the character commits the murder because he the character thinks he's a superior person yeah. a superior yes. human being who can actually make the world better by getting rid of useless people the old, yes indeed the old, uh, the old lady mm. so that is a, so to speak a, a, a murder in the service of an idea which none of none of, uh, none of are. but you're right maybe some in Karamata I hadn't thought of that it's a very interesting thought
1: in, in a man's head, I mean, Radek does see himself as a superior. Uh, does he? Yes, and, yeah. and in fact, it's part of the uh, of the tension between Magrat. Uh, it's one of these interesting uh, uh, confrontation. Now, it has nothing. It has, that's that's the only. Um, uh, similarity I can find. It's just the fact that here you have somebody who sees himself, uh, who, needs, who is actually expressing his superiority by, by, by committing that particular murder. Uh, but it has no religious undertone, nothing like that.
2: It's just that particular situation. complicated because I've come across a style of interpretation of Dostoevsky. I've even developed a little bit myself, in which he was in fact an atheist, but let's put that aside. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Another
0: I was wondering. Somewhere, somewhere near the front. Was it you? Just add, Perhaps, could you just wait for the microphone? <laughs> <coughs>
5: um, just an ignorance, really, of, of poli- the policier as a genre. And I wonder if the French have a, a monopoly of the form in the historical presentation as your father, you know, did he develop a, a in continuity from, through the French language?
1: what What made him stand out is that he was the first to write about Maigret is the first uh, uh, policeman from a police force in France until then all the all the uh, mysteries were uh they were uh, private uh, detectives or journalists or whatever and the first who were actually uh, you know was defined as precisely a policeman uh, that was Megray. and since then you know you have I think you know, I'm not the right person to judge that. I'll leave it to others. But I'm sure that you can see many links between uh, ulterior um, uh, policemen and Maigret. But that, I would say, is what made him very different at the time. And I think that was also a conscious decision that my father made. Uh, because clearly... There uh, are two conscious decisions that he made. One, make him a, uh, a very ordinary policeman but when all these other poli- uh, detectives were extraordinary mm. they had special powers special uh, capacities so here Megre had to be ordinary and ordinary both as a policeman and precisely not knowing what he's doing exactly you know just being an everyday man himself leading an ordinary life with mm. a very ordinary life absolutely uh,
0: I can see two more questions and then I'm we'll drinking,
1: by the way I just want to make that little joke if I have time uh, water is not something that Meg Ray drinks. <laughs> <laughs> well, he drinks it with other things. Yeah.
0: Now, you have a question.
3: Hello. So um, if we place the novels of
2: Simenon and Meg Ray in the whole crime novel genre, um,
3: we see that he's more of a whodunit uh, kind of novelist, uh, along perhaps with Agatha Christie or Le Carré sometimes
2: where there is, as you mentioned, a small world, a few suspects they're chasing after and make great tries, more or less, to find who has done it or not. Whereas we see nowadays, perhaps in Scandinavian crime novels, that it's more like action-packed, more kind of a thriller of a crime than a detective novel. Do you see as well that slowly this genre of who done it is dying and is replaced by something that perhaps can be directly transformed into the TV or the cinema?
4: <coughs> I'm not really an expert on the genre, I... No.
2: but I would say it's not so, at
1: all like Agatha Christie.
4: No.
1: no. In fact, we about... we are. I can tell you from personal experience. I just went through this. I mean, the best way to characterize Meg Ray in the way we look at him is that you know he doesn't solve mysteries; he solves people. Mm. Yeah. And uh, and the scriptwriter who's who's developed the two films that will be shown on ITV and. You know, soon is the same guy who, uh, who did most of the Agatha Christie's. And he had to change, you know, 180 degrees his, his view of, you know, even how to write, to, to, to think and to, uh, to perceive the, the, the whole environment and make his own attitude.
2: The writer who's the closest mm. to Simonon, in my opinion, uh, after Simon is Pascal Garnier.
1: Mm.
5: Yeah.
2: Yes. Uh, um, French writer. They're all in, in print, so you can read them and they're very similar in other words what they are are novels of the extreme situations that befall ordinary human beings that's what that's what they're about yeah.
0: okay now we have, we, we have two brief uh, contributions then, and i think we should close
4: okay
5: um, no I, I would say very strongly that she is uh, you know why did people a writer who's why did people uh, do it, but also he's influenced um, a whole generation of writers uh, in all countries, like Nettie Camilleri and um, uh, Gianrico Carofiglio, uh, who has almost created a similar, uh, deeply flawed detective, and who has the same, I would actually call it a methodology, this uh, state of having no method and going vague. And what he he does those States is a kind of pre conscious processing where you take in a lot more than uh, the rational uh, mind would do. Pregnant women have it too. And it, the Italian Cantilio uh, says it's, it's um, when in those states you, know, you notice the dissonance, which before wasn't there, of, of some, So they suddenly uh, important. Uh, the thing you haven't really got across is the sheer pleasure it is to read those books. Mm. Uh, he has, uh, I mean, they, they are deeply meaningful in many ways, but he has a light touch. Yes. Mm. And, and the language is so evocative. I, I mean, I lived in Paris and I, I savor uh, every <coughs> sentence. And, uh, um, uh, you know, the, it, it's. Um, in discussion it's become rather theoretical and a little ponderous but he is fun and <laughs> that has to be
0: stressed last word at the front and then we must close
4: hi um, I, I wonder what you
2: think of um what you think he would have made of writers who have a tendency
3: to aestheticize suffering like jean genet or uh, Emil emile shoran the romanian writer who sort of his argument against suicide is that we have to willingly submit ourselves to the, the, you know, the melancholic spectacle
2: of the world because it's so enjoyable.
0: John, there's no enjoyment of violence or... Of...
2: I would endorse what's just been said. One of the features of Simenon as a writer is, he doesn't, is is that he's a very enjoyable writer and it's his light touch. It's partly a stylistic feature. Yes. It's the language because it's, it's pared there's down talent. and it's extremely sensuous. And it's to do with impressions and sensations and not doctrines or theories. I've read a lot of Sierra, and at, at one point I, re, I tried to think of, a, of an aspect, I tried to think of a depiction of the non human world which cheered him up. And all I found was he mentions ferns at one point in the whole corpus. <laughs> and it's ultimately claustrophobic, the world of Sierra, in a way that uh, uh, Themenon is not. Because in Simenon, there are these familiar places if you've been in Paris or Marseille or, yeah. uh, and so on. Uh, they're beautifully evoked. But it's a world in which Simenon himself and the characters, in a sense, are in many ways open to the world of the senses after they have the disaster in their lives. Before the disaster, they're enclosed in their thoughts and projects yeah. and their bourgeois life. After the disaster, they start smelling, they start seeing, they start. And there are some wonderful descriptions of sea, not just water, sea. Yeah occurs in a lot of his, his, of his books so I think he's quite different from from Sierra okay, opposite well, almost
0: we're, we're out of time and I'd just like to thank all three members of the panel for their very illuminating contributions today thank you very much